Hi, everybody. JP here with a quick update before today's episode. First of all, Dr. Wang and I want to thank everyone for the explosion of interest and enthusiasm we had for the Families in Neurosurgery miniseries, which came to an end this past week. I'm looking at our statistics right now. We had over 3,500 listens in the past week alone, which I think is a record for the show since we started. We also recently passed 250,000 overall listens, which for a podcast targeted towards such a small segment of the population as a whole is huge. And we couldn't have done this without all of you who listen to us every week rambling about all these topics. So thank you, thank you, thank you for staying with us. On a more personal note, this family series was such a pleasure to record, and we really can't thank our guests enough who are willing to come on and speak about these painful, private, personal, often dark aspects of their lives, and share that not only with us, but all of you listening. So again, we really can't thank them enough for coming on the show and discussing these topics. So with that, we're excited to get back to basics this week and return to some normal weekly episodes. We will have a common theme in the next few weeks looking at innovation, invention, and creativity within neurosurgery, but this won't be any kind of formal or structured mini-series, so be on the lookout for just normal weekly episodes coming your way each Sunday. We are also excited to roll out some new theme music today, both at the beginning and end of the show. Let us know what you think about that. Let us know what you think about the recently finished Families in Neurosurgery series. And if you have any ideas, suggestions, or requests for topics for us to cover, please know that you can always reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners with positive or negative feedback. We're always here and open to hear from you. So with that, let's get on to the show. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm actually live here in Monterey, California, and JP is in New York City visiting family, uh, which is well-deserved time off and hard to come by, right, JP? That's right. So I actually am here at the American Academy of Neurological Surgery meeting, and I'm not a member yet. Uh, I, I've applied to be a member, but this is a very august and privileged, uh, if you will, group in the, in the best possible way because folks that are members are, are great scientists. And last week I was in uh, West Virginia at WVU, and I had the chance to meet Pete Conrad. Um, Pete is the chair of neurosurgery at WVU, but he spent most of his career in Vanderbilt. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I really enjoy the opportunity to talk with you a little bit about anything and everything you'd like. But. Now, I've heard a lot about you over the years as a neurosurgeon. Of course, our fields don't overlap. I'm a spine surgeon and you're a functional surgeon, right? Yes, yes. But I have heard about your research and I didn't get to meet you until we were in Morgantown last week. And we had started talking about some of the exciting things you've been doing. So let's just kind of get into it. So tell me about your journey, how you became a functional neurosurgeon. How did that even start? Oh, yeah, it's uh, I kind of came in the door backwards. Um, I first went to uh, graduate school and was very interested in bioengineering. Um, I knew I kind of wanted to go to medical school, but um, as an undergrad, I was at a small college and somebody introduced me to the idea of basically doing combined uh, medical school and graduate school work. And I thought that's really interesting. I could maybe 
do a little bit of my interest as an engineering uh, advocate as well as a doctor. So I, I started down that path at Purdue um, and got hooked on the whole biotechnology neuroengineering point as a grad student there. And, and it was really Purdue that I wanted to stay at to finish my graduate school degree. And there's one medical school in Indiana. So I applied for that during um, uh, graduate training and actually was a dual enrolled person between two different universities for about five years there. Oh, wow. So it was that the MS, it's not the MST. No, no, that was kind of new at the time. I actually was dual matriculate. It turns out Purdue and Indiana University had a very nice reciprocal relationship of medical courses on both campuses and they were sort of exchanging things sort of in, informally and and myself and another friend of mine were kind of the first MD, PhD people kind of bridging the two universities. So anyway, it was the environment in the bioengineering program that was um, probably the best learning I did in my life, uh, honestly. And then I got really interested in devices and technology and wanted to be at the application stage of that. So pretty quickly knew I wanted to go into neurosurgery when I was done okay. with medical school. I'm going to back you up for a minute there because there's so much to talk about here. So Randy Nelson, who I got to meet, he's the director of neuroscience at WVU, right? Yes. I read his bio and he's the first person to get two simultaneous PhDs, right? That's that's in his short bio, right? Mm -hmm. But you actually did something similar, which is very rare. And, and for our listeners who are younger, they may not be aware that most MD PhDs goes they go through what's called an MSTP program, yes. right? Medical Scientist Training Program. Yeah, that's an NIH-funded program. Right, and so you do an MD and a PhD in like seven years, but a lot of PhDs say that's a fake PhD, right? Because you're accelerated through. Yeah, well, I I would, some program, it may have started out at some places like that, but um, I, I also have participated in a lot of graduate training with MSTP students over the years, and they really do work a lot uh, of the same types of background undergrad. I think their medical training, honestly, is more shortened than their well, graduate training. Now, I don't mean to be offensive because I know there's a lot of MD, PhDs that were MSTP, but what I'm getting at is most people I know who are MD, PhDs, yeah. they either did a PhD first or they did an MD first, then they did a PhD or they did MSTP, yeah. right? Yeah. You did something very rare, yeah. which is you were dual matriculated in two yes, different institutions. Yes, I was. I was a Hoosier and a Boilermaker. And for the record, I'm a Boilermaker by the way. That's great. So, so tell us about your, so you do your training and what was your area of research for your PhD at the time? Uh, it was actually motor evoked potentials. And uh, there was a, that had just emerged as a new diagnostic tool and there was no animal data to support where the, uh, um, anatomy and physiology was going with that. So um, I got connected with Clark Watts and Jay Levy, who were at Missouri at the time, uh, starting out the whole MEP ideas, and uh, they needed some animal work on it. And so I spent a lot of time doing rats and cats and dog studies, looking at how motor vote potentials are conducted from the brain down to through the cord. Um, okay, so give us a, and, and a all that. very brief introduction for those who aren't initiated. Yeah. What is an MEP or motor evoked potential? Yeah. So motor evoked potentials are like other evoked potentials. They're evoked in the sense that you provide an artificial stimulus, usually an electrical stimulus on a nerve, and then you record multiple times downstream. And through signal processing, you can kind of filter and prune that to pick out the signals directly related to the pathways what you're stimulating. So um, motor vote potentials particularly are usually done stimulating over the brain or upper part of the cord. And then you put electrodes downstream at the cord or peripheral nerve level 
and you watch the response conducted in the motor pathways. But what I quickly learned was there's seven motor pathways coming down the cord and not all of it's the cortical spinal path, which we're trained in medical school. In fact, that's probably one of the less important things I think in our motor system, as opposed to all of the extra parameter pathways. Yeah, so Alan Levy to... does research on this. Alan Levy just gave a talk about this that that he did research on this too, but from the spinal cord perspective. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was a, it was a good introduction. It taught me a lot about motor system physiology and um, the technicalities of of how to how to create signals in the nervous system and study them. And so I kind of really enjoyed building my physiology background in that area. Well, Dr. Conrad, I think it is, um, it's not uncommon to meet people in medicine, particularly in neurology, neurosurgery, who have this similar background of interest in engineering, interest in basic neuroscience, and then, as you said, uh, become more interested in the application of this basic science. But yes. at least from where yes. we are in your story so far, electrophysiologist is a career that's out there. So from from this passion for motor systems and this passion for motor evoked potentials, how did you make the leap? from the study of the engineering of the nervous system and the motor system to a clinical practitioner and a surgeon? Yeah, actually, um, the, the MEP story was a good way to learn the science, but I always still wanted to be on the device implant application side. So um, uh, the story just continues after I went, got into residency at Vanderbilt and then um, as I was finishing residency, uh, a, a colleague of mine who was just finishing neurology residency, David Charles, went and did a Fulbright fellowship over at Grenoble because um, the F we were actually participating at Vanderbilt while I was a resident in some of the initial tremor implant trials for DBS. And I thought this was really cool. It taught me a little bit about stereotaxy and, and it was applied physiology. And, and that at the time was about as, as uh, good as it got, I'd learned something about spinal cord stem for pain and a little bit of pumps. All of these were new. The FDA approved pumps and stems around the late 90s. I mean, DBS got approved in 97 and pumps just shortly before then. And so this was a new emerging niche for functional neurosurgery, which is sort of device management. And that's what really attracted me into this space. So, I mean, David went off to France. He came back and he says, I want to do DBS at Vanderbilt more. I need a neurosurgeon committed to it. And my chairman at the time, Dr. Allen, um, said, you're the guy that needs to really, you know, push this. You have all the right background in it. I went over to France, spent a little time with Dr. Benabid and got to know him. And um, that's how we got launched. And so David and I just said, we're just going to start doing DBS. And it's also the time at which I got to meet a lot of other people, which was probably another seminal learning point in my career that I would encourage all young people to think of. And that is, <clears throat> I reached out to probably no less than a half a dozen other functional neurosurgeons who I had no clue about other than I knew they were very well-established people and was so grateful to be uh, just welcomed uh, and just taught a lot of things that, that I didn't have a chance to explore when I was over in France or whatever. So I got to know Dr. Rezai that way, Dr. Lozano that way, Dr. Barbaro, and Dr. Michael um, Levy, or I mean, Robert Levy, uh, who was at Northwestern at the time. These are just a few of the people I remember calling in my first couple of years as an attending and say, hey, I've never done DBS for pain before, for instance. Like I have a patient who has a stroke. I'm wondering, is this 
use of DVS okay. And so anyway, um, it, it started me off on a good path, but most of what I was doing at the time was helping David Charles and I grow a DVS program for Parkinson's disease. Well, let's follow that path where it goes. I, I know that what brings you to that meeting in Monterey is the presentation of the five-year data for your study yeah. on DBS for early Parkinson's disease. Yes, um, yes. We're obviously excited to hear about this, and we want to share these findings at this stage with our listeners. But before we get into what you're presenting at this meeting, if you could paint the picture for us of what the field looked like when you initiated this trial. I know this was the first trial that you spearheaded to look at the use of DBS early in the disease course of Parkinson's. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And we were on a completely different notion than what DBS had just gotten approved for. So um, again, uh, Professor Benneby gets the credit for this, but what struck me in 98 as, as we just started was Ben had been already implanting Parkinson's patients for 10 years experimentally over in Grenoble. And um, these were advanced Parkinson's patients. So at that time, DBS was not considered unless you had failed all medical therapy and your symptoms were unmanageable otherwise. And DBS was sort of the last ditch rescue effort. That's the field at that time. Ben then said something completely crazy. And he said, you know, Pete and David, I think the I think STN implants in these PD people actually changes their outcome. I think it's slowing their disease down. And we're like, what? And he's he said, uh, yeah, I don't think it's just treating their tremor or the rigidity. I actually think my patients who got DBS 10 years ago, they should have been dead or in a nursing home completely dependent on care. And they're coming in for their batteries still getting replaced. I think it's doing something on the disease, not just the symptoms. So that's what launched David and I as a partnership to really take that question on. He, and there was a lot of doubt at the time and a lot of fear that DBS was too risky to put in early patients. We, were, we ran against many applications in the NIH. We, we provided at least two or three major funded applications at the request of the NIH and just got denied the opportunity to get funding for this initially because everybody was too scared about suggesting that you would put an electrode in somebody's brain at the very onset of their disease in the hopes that you could slow the disease down um, without a lot of preliminary data. And then about the mid-2000s, a lot of animal data began to fall into place, including some from Ben's lab and others showing that there's a lot of animal data to support the idea that STN is a glutamate-rich area. And we know in Parkinson's disease that you lose dopamine cells from the nigra. And so we began looking at, is there evidence to tell us in the STN that, you know, this reciprocal relationship of nigral cells and STN cells was at play. And we indeed found that STN escalated a lot as the disease went on in people. So we were doing MER recordings and showing that STN progression and firing rates were going up uh, as people were advancing in their disease. So it gave us a lot of hope that if we could regulate the STN output, there actually might be some way to reduce the glutamate toxicity, which is the theory behind why this should work. So, um, and then there was also other data that came out in the mid 2000s as we were still reapplying for the idea of let's do a pilot study on this. So we wrote a letter 
in nature to the editor at the time saying, suggesting this uh, weird idea that, you know, could DBS be neuroprotective for, for Parkinson's disease? And uh, it met with a lot of, you know, skepticism. And I'm, I'm still, I still find it all over the place here that, you know, we just don't know that this is real or not. <clears throat> well, I do want to underscore for some of our listeners that are early in their education, even in college or early in medical school, some listeners who are in the lay public but associated with neurosurgery and, and so tune into the show, the significance of having any kind of medical treatment that is disease modifying or partially curable or neuroprotective, as you say, versus something that merely treats symptoms. And of course, merely is perhaps an inappropriate word to use when these symptoms are so severe, but the significance to the patient, their families, and their overall disease course of something that may actually impact the disease versus simply mollify or modify the symptoms of that disease is, uh, it, you know, it's a step function of significance and what we can do for patients. So, Dr. Conrad, I suppose the million-dollar question now is, five years out, what did you find? Right. right. So, actually, um, it's been... It's been a very exciting amount because the initial pushback we got was, well, before we're going to approve some large pivotal in, you know, transinstitutional study to put things in, we got to show us that it's safe, that putting in DBS early in somebody doesn't accelerate their disease or create an unacceptable problem rate. And again, at that time, it was not 100% clear that DBS was you know, uh, not, you know, not a risky thing to do. And now over the years, we know now the FDA considers implants for DBS pretty safe. They're just now in, uh, trying to sort through indications for it. But so at the time, we, we came up with the safety uh, pilot study group that still is the unique group I'm going to talk about because the pivotal study has yet to be funded. And uh, so the pilot group basically was a pretty unique group of people and um, what we did was we randomized 30 patients and basically asked them at the beginning of their diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, would you be willing to undergo optimal drug therapy or go through a surgery and have two electrodes put into your brain and use, you know, use that as a, as a treatment protocol. Um, and you'd be randomized to this. Okay. And we want to study you for at least two years and out to five years. And every six months you have to come eight days off your medications, off your stem, because that is really still the only way to assess baseline disease progression in Parkinson's. There's no biomarker for Parkinson's. So that's another thing you have to understand is that the way you assess disease progression for Parkinson's is still the classic UPTRS way. And when you take people off all their medications and their um, any sort of treatment, you that's the only way you're going to assess what the baseline status of their disease is. And the other confounding factor is, is that dopamine, which is the treatment used at the beginning of most disease for Parkinson's, uh, is takes several days to wash out. So that's why you can never wash somebody out in their advanced disease states because they just won't stick around for, and it turns out nobody knew how long the dopamine hung out. That's another finding in our study is that it actually takes seven days to get the full washout effect um, where you don't see any effect from the dopamine treatment. But um, so those people were very brave, very bold uh, to submit randomly to either have a surgery or drug therapy. And then furthermore, 28 of those 30 people stuck with us for up to five years. Um, and for two years, they were able to 
follow through with eight days of washout. So the data, the, the study group is unique and the um, follow through is, is fantastic. And so the end of the results here basically tell us at five years, there is indeed a complete, almost a complete arrest of tremor progression in these patients that started, that was already statistically significant at uh, P005 at two years, but it's only even more so um, at, at five years out. And that, so if you had Parkinson's disease <clears throat> um, and you got implanted in your STN, uh, you were five times less likely to develop tremor progression in any new limb. And in fact, that almost was like a zero chance of progressing. Uh, and your optimal drug therapy group continued to be tremor. Wow. To have seven times more likelihood of tremor by two years than, than the implanted group. What was more surprising even was um, the fact that the at five years, uh, the DBS people were almost 17 times less likely to need polypharmacy. So a big problem in Parkinson's disease that most people probably realize is that as you go on with your Parkinson's, you're gonna need more and more medications. It's not just like, you know, 150 milligrams or 200 milligrams or 300 milligrams of Cinemed three times a day is gonna fix you for, for, for the rest of your life every year you are going to escalate on your drug requirements. And those drug requirements eventually tip into other forms of dopamine agonist therapies. And it's the COMPT inhibitors and the MAO inhibitors that really cause the morbidity of Parkinson's patients years later. It causes them to fall, it causes them to have blood pressure swings, GI problems. There's a lot of comorbidity that results in ER admissions for Parkinson's patients later on. If you got your DBS put in at the very first part of your disease within a year or two of being diagnosed, which is what this group was, you were still on monotherapy for your disease and essentially said, you know, the other group had 17 times more likelihood to continue on polypharmacy. That's huge. Well, Peter, this is absolutely fascinating. I, I, I think when I mentioned West Virginia, I told you that I wanted to be a functional neurosurgeon. And I think the third book I ever bought was uh, was Andres Lozano's, mm. is it that tome, right? Yes, yes. And, and I tried to read it. And, and of course, I was dissuaded because I wasn't smart enough to do what you do. And, and it's very obvious now that, you know, for those listening who aren't as initiated, that you've You've, you've woven this story, this beautiful story, which is the story of medicine, that Benabid, through clinical experience, had an observation and a theory. That's right. But it took your work over 25 years mm -hmm. to build the evidence for that. But yet the journey revealed all these other sidetracks of, That's right. of mechanism, mechanistic research or or physiology or whatever it is, and you've become an expert. And it's been so fascinating. And if, if you're listening to this and, and you didn't know about this, you should understand that I think the old saying goes, you can only publish in a New England journal if you're a neurosurgeon, if you have a negative surgical trial, right? <laughs> yeah. And here you have maybe, I, I, I wanna say this is paradigm shifting, as JP indicated, a step change in the same way like microvascular decompression became a step change or, um, spinal fusion became a step change. This idea that you would actually affect through surgery, mm -hmm. the long-term consequences of a disease process. And we're starting to see this in other areas, right? We're starting yeah. to see this in cortical stim for stroke, things like that, through different mechanisms, of course. 
And it really, for those people who say, well, one day surgery will disappear because, you know, we're going to have a pill you take, yeah. right? I think this is this is really an encouragement, not that we want to do surgeries on people, but that surgery has a, a future indefinite. Yes. Now, I want to shift gears because that I, I, we could spend all day talking about what you just sort of glossed over, right? Mm -hmm. But you have other projects too, which is really fascinating to me. You you have a project in spinal cord injury, right? Yes. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah. So um, again, uh, my my heritage is I'm a device geek, uh, and and so anything that devices can be used to help neurological problems, I'm I'm all for it. And because I spent a lot of time on my PhD in spinal cord, I always really liked the science and the the anatomy behind spinal cord problems. And so one of our unsolved problems in in the history of medicine is actually restoring you know mobility in paralyzed people. We just haven't ever really done that in in the, in all of medicine. Now, when you go look at um, spinal cord injured people, I mean, what we do in rehab is we teach people to cope with their injury, but we don't really you know restore what they've lost. So I, I had the pleasure of getting connected with um, a wonderful spinal cord scientist up in Alberta, Canada, Dr. Vivian Mushawar, who's a PhD up there and, a, and also a neural engineering person. And she had presented some data at an NIH meeting like 10, 15 years ago that just floored me. And then she showed me paralyzed cats that she had inserted micro electrodes into, and I'm talking 10 times smaller than what we do in the brain. These are 50 micron size, that's less than a quarter the size of your hair. But with as little as four to eight of those wires put in around the lumbo, uh, thoracolumbar uh, motor region, she was able to take completely transected cats and hijack their, their lower motor neuron um, walking circuits and make them walk again for, for up to a kilometer with no fatigue. And that's one of the most impressive videos. If you ever go research her work, you'll ever see. And I asked her at the time, I said, who's doing your clinical work on this? Because this is right. She had shown safety in animals. She'd shown that the electrode was tolerable in normal awake animals. She put them in normal cats and they, they didn't re react negatively to having Wait, that. Raj Mita and John Hurlbert and uh, who's the other spine surgeon there? Uh, they, they didn't jump on this? No. Wow. So she had been working for quietly alone for about five, 10 years. And uh, so anyway, I said, I, I want to write an IRB with you to actually do a proof and uh, concept in humans. And that was a number of years ago. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, again, as times change, you know, IRBs and hospitals change. I had I had received funding for it, but was not able to execute on it. Um, uh, the last few years, but I'm, I'm now at a place where I feel like I can uh, do that and uh, begin to restore that. So um, I'm just going to put a teaser out there. Just wait until we, we, you know, move forward on this as a proof of concept study for people, because I really think that's another area in which devices are going to make a huge difference. Now, I'm fully aware of all the data out there on epidural stimulation. So I'm not saying this is better, worse, or or you know, competitive with it, I think there's just a different mechanism going on and epidural spinal cord stimulation is getting a lot of airtime right now because it's easy, it's pretty simple, it's very low risk, and it does achieve, I think, a rehab potential for these people. But what I'm actually talking about is independent overground walking. Well, Dr. Conrad, it's, it's fascinating to me, I think, um, 
everything you've been describing with your DBS trial, with the spinal cord injury trial, again, as you pointed out with our spinal cord injury patients, typically rehab, to use your words, helps them cope with their injury. But as we discussed with the, the your DBS trial, these implants you're discussing may actually be curative and actually change the function of the neural tissue rather than help a person deal with the symptoms. Once again, getting at the root of the problem. And I, I love hearing you describe the progress and this decades-long process you've had with your DBS trial. And it's kind of the inverse in what we see in some other areas of neurosurgery where, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis, drugs have yeah. largely precluded a common surgery. But in, in, in this case, it's the inverse where new surgical devices, new surgical techniques are limiting the pharmacological interventions for our patients, with, uh, you know, which have their own host of side effects. But what really strikes me listening to you talk today is this sense of optimism you have for the future of your own work, for the field, and for these patients who have these injuries, these disease processes that we previously may have thought were quite pessimistic in outlook. So I wonder if, as we wrap this conversation up, you could just look ahead for us uh, with your own DBS work, with the spinal cord injury work, and make a case for optimism for these patients that have so long had what might be considered uncurable disease. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, in a nutshell, my opinion is that, um, look, uh, what we do in surgery is we address focal problems, right? Um, drugs address global problems typically as a receptor or genetic disorder, right? So every time you see a paper come out that discusses some scientific discovery of where a clinical problem has localized to a location within the nervous system, that's a point of opportunity for surgical care. Now, I don't care if you're dropping off the drug locally through some, some sort of focal infusion or whether you're lesioning it or whether you're applying a uh, electrode there or some gene therapy there. But um, what, I, what I tell my Parkinson's patients, for instance, that get regular DBS therapy, I said, look, your implant can do something the drugs can never do. You can't make a pill go to one side of your brain different than the other side, and yet your symptoms are asymmetric. And so with an electrical device, for instance, you can control both sides of your body differently. And that's a very rudimentary example of where, where surgery can address focal disorders that no drug could do. Um, and so, you know, keep your eye out for all those discoveries of connectomics and where pathways are disabled or not, um, because those are all surgical areas of opportunity and you need a surgeon to get there. Now, whether it's an open invasive thing or whether we're doing it more transcutaneous or minimally invasive, I mean, I think there's no doubt that's the direction that has to go but it still requires a surgeon to perform some sort of procedural event to interact with that, that pathology in a very focal manner. So, so, you know, the future I think is, is good for us. That is, that is such a wonderful message. And um, I want to throw a shout out to Ali Razai, uh, yes. who is uh, overseeing the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, which is at WVU, which is uh is basically an umbrella over you in neurosurgery, yes. psychiatry, neurology, uh, PM&R. And I think he's going on the Today Show this week. It's quite uh, likely. Yeah. <laughs> I can't keep up with the guy. He is uh, all over the place, uh, you know, doing his his uh, fair share of um, advertising about, you know, opportunities. 
well, he's lucky to have recruited a great mind and uh, and visionary like you, and of course the the rest of your team. I know you work in a team setting. Yes. And a quick shout out to Neil Nanda who and uh, Alan Levy and Jacques Morcos who invited me to this meeting. I'm not a member yet, but I the, it's it's absolutely fantastic. So thank you again for coming on to the Nursery Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you guys inviting me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.